I'm Debbie Martin, and you're tuned in to the Backyard Pet Talk with Shannon Riley podcast. Hello, Debbie. It's so good to see you today and have you on the podcast. I'm super excited for those who are listening. Um, Debbie and I go way back. It's kind of like a crazy convoluted. When you're in a vet tech in the behavior world, you eventually run into each other a long time. And we've done things with SVBT, the Society of Veterinary Behavior Technicians and conferences. And so I was super excited that you agreed to be on the podcast. I want to a lot talk about your book because it's a second edition, which is awesome, of the canine and feline behavior for veterinary technicians and nurses. I just wanted to make sure I got that title correct. And yes, it's um, a long one. Very long is. title. <laughs> it is but that's so what it, textbooks tend to be that way. <laughs> that is true. And it's a textbook, but it's a great, which when we get into it, um, think other people besides just texts and veterinarians and anybody, I mean, even veterinarians would benefit from this, but so many people would benefit even pet owners. I think if they're really into the academic part of behavior could really benefit mm -hmm. from it. But you also are involved in so many things to help pets be more comfortable in the world with fear-free, especially in the veterinary hospital, being that you are married to a veterinarian and you're a tech. So, you know, a lot of focus is keeping them feeling safe in the hospitals and when they're getting treatments, but you also are involved in Karen Pryor Academy and, you know, just so many avenues, which when we are vet techs, you know, we kind of do. I remember in um, the early, early 2000s, late 90s, somebody asking me, because I've always loved behavior. And when I became a tech, I'm like, you know, and this is crazy to say, because we're doing it really dog training and veterinary technicians have to find a way to merge, you know, and this was about when you and Julie were getting involved with getting SVBT started, but I had no idea what in the nineties, I had no idea what I was getting to when I was saying, yeah. that you know? well, things have changed a lot, you know, <laughs> exactly. they're changing constantly. Yeah. For sure. So I gave a little brief bio of you, but tell us a little bit more about your background. Like, how did you get into all of this? And, and just, I mean, I know it could be forever because you have a really amazing bio, but just kind of tell us about your background and how you got into all this. Yeah. So I actually, uh, becoming a veterinary technician was my second career. Initially I was a preschool teacher. So I had a background in, you know, family relations and um, kind of psychology and of children and, so I think when I switched careers into the animal field, when I got into practice, I naturally gravitated to what can we do with these puppies and kittens to make sure that they have the best life possible, right? You know, yeah. like just thinking about the developmental stages that children go through, but then also recognizing that dogs and cats also go through developmental stages. They're just a very short window of time. And so we can actually have a profound impact on the wellness, the physical and emotional wellness of our pets by looking at that developmental stage. And so that's kind of where I started in general practice. I was teaching uh, puppy classes at the practice where I was working and big passion for preventive behavioral care because there are so many things that we can prevent or at least minimize if we are thoughtful about how we raise our dogs and cats in our home and also how we treat them in the veterinary hospital. But then also recognizing that not everything's preventable. There are certain things, you know, so genetics play a role, experiences play a role, the learning the animal has during those experiences are going to be all different, you know, based on the individual. 
And so then that got me more into intervention care. Like when we weren't able to prevent an issue or they were past preventative stages, how do we help these animals and these pet owners that they have, they love each other and they have a strong bond, but they're having challenges living together, whether it's due to fear or anxiety or aggression. And so kind of from there went on to learning more about treating behavior within the veterinary field and veterinary specialty. But my passion has always been on education, educating pet owners, you know, so, you know, that's a big role. You know that, Shannon, like this is what we do. We educate them about why their animals do the things they do and having empathy with their animals and understanding that pet's perspective helps us provide appropriate solutions to these challenges that they have. And so from there, all that preventive stuff, it really kind of comes down to, I wanted to educate more educators. And (laughs) the way to do that is you get out in the public speaking circuit at the conferences, and then apparently you write a textbook too, or other books. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, yes, because to reach all of those people and mm-hmm. and to reach them, and it's still, we talked a little bit before we started the podcast, that it's still a struggle because mm-hmm. there's old school thinking still in the veterinary medicine. And a lot of it is get her done quickly, you know, get past this, get going. That is a hard thing to break. Plus, we also have on the flip side of that, we have old school training philosophy too. So traditional training where animals need to be punished and animals need to do. And it's interesting. I just learned a fact about you. I did not know you were a preschool teacher before, but it makes sense too, because I've always was interested in being young teachers. I just, I worked in the college. I worked in the young schools and I was like, I don't know if I can handle kids all the time. I really like kids and I like the developmental part, but I didn't know if I could handle kids all the time. But the parallel of what I had the same thing, I'm like, we aren't spanking kids anymore. We're realizing this isn't hurting. Why are we still doing this with our dogs? And I saw that really early on in my career, you know, too, but you have these textbooks and you have, you, you were part, uh, you and Julie, we can't forget to bring Julie in here, Julie Shaw, because she was a big part of the pioneering of this too, way back when you guys started the society of veterinary behavior technicians. And I actually, I was not involved in the development of the Society of Veterinary Behavior Technicians. I joined it early Uh on, but that was really Julie's baby. And I was, uh, and then even the Academy of Veterinary Behavior Technicians, which is kind of like our certifying body to become a veterinary technician specialist in behavior. Um, So the Academy, the, the founding members, I was not in that. I had not been in behavior long enough to be one of those founding members. I did sit for the first examination that was offered in 2010, okay. <laughs> but I did not actually get to form it. Uh, okay. And so I followed in her footsteps. She was, Julie Shaw is a mentor of mine. Mm-hmm. She was at Purdue University. Uh, in fact, she she inspired me. I was living in Ohio, working at a vet hospital. She inspired me to move from Ohio to Indiana and get a job at Purdue University because she was talking about potentially having a behavior residency for technicians. Now that never came to fruition, unfortunately, but I moved and got a job at Purdue thinking when this becomes available, I'm going to apply and be the first one to get it. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, it is so much, you and I have crossed paths for years with all of these just different things and being involved in SVBT and 
I never actually went through the academy anymore because I life wasn't going to be what I needed that those letters weren't necessary behind my name. You know, I had sure. enough letters, but it didn't mean I didn't support it. And I didn't love it. I mean, as a president of it, you know, at one point. And so it is one of those things that we have to keep pioneering this because <laughs> this isn't something that overnight, just like um, how we raise kids didn't change overnight and how we treat children. Unfortunately, animals still are seen as property a lot. So it's a, a thing that there's going to be lots of people and there are, there's a small group of us. How many vet te technician specialists are there now in behavior? 30. 30. Yes. So there are and only now, 30. Yeah. Yes, there's but only the numbers 30. are increasing. I would say, you know, I'm going to attribute that to the, the fear-free movement and um, yes. the fear-free veterinary initiative that it has general techs working in general medicine uh, and surgery are learning about behavior and how animals communicate. And they're able to see when animals show signs of fear, anxiety, or stress, and they can recognize it. And once you see it, you cannot unsee it. Unfortunately, I tell people that is like, true. All these pet get togethers and parades and stuff won't be as enjoyable anymore when you recognize the signs of fear and anxiety in pets because oh, a lot of that them is so would true. rather be home. Yes. I, I had a conference that I did just recently, just a one day, and people are like, Can I bring my dog? I'm like, Your dog does not want to be here for eight hours sitting next to you. They don't want that. You know, it is, it's true. You can't unsee it. But I'm glad you brought up the fear free because that's something that a lot of people so we'll talk about you know the book but also fear free is important because fear free isn't just focused on the technician fear free is now for groomers for pet sitters i mean it's just growing and growing mm -hmm. and it is something that's accessible that even pet owners can start to learn about and actually advocate for their pet by saying i'm not going to your practice if you don't practice these these philosophies of fear free. So right. tell us a little bit about the fear free movement, you know, and everything that happened with that movement, which is still growing and it's still expanding. And COVID kind of put a little slowdown on the educational seminars that were happening at the time, you know, before COVID. But right. tell us a little bit about the fear free movement. Yeah. So fear free is, was founded by Dr. Marty Becker. Uh, known as American's Veterinarian. He used to be on Good Morning America for years. Uh, he's written numerous books. Uh, Chicken Soup for the Pet Lover's Soul is one of his well-known ones. His most recent one, From uh, Fearful to Fear Free, and that was co-written with a couple of veterinary behaviorists and also his trainer daughter, Mikkel Becker. It's a really great resource uh, all around for pet owners. But he he brings people together and he brought technicians and veterinary behaviorists and specialists in veterinary medicine just in general and started this awareness about the not just the physical well-being of pet but also the emotional well-being and that what we were doing in veterinary medicine could actually be detrimental to the emotional well-being of pets and we need to take that into consideration because they are they work synergistically if you're not feeling well like physically well, oftentimes you're emotionally not feeling well either and vice versa. If mm -hmm. you're emotionally uh, having challenges, uh, you can feel that physiologically. There are, you know, numerous studies in people that recognize this, but we also see it in animals. And so certainly that neural pathway, uh, the way we express those things are very similar. Um, in fact, it can affect our immune response. So stress and anxiety, chronic stress and anxiety, fears, phobias, 
can have a really detrimental, not only on the, the lifespan of a pet, but also their quality of life. Yeah. And so what, what this started was, let's get veterinary care more aware, right? You know, so we're not contributing to it. But then we also realized, hey, you know, pets only spend a very small amount of their life at the vet hospital hopefully, right? Yes. <laughs> um, and they're exactly. having all these other experiences, whether it be with trainers, groomers, uh, pet sitting, boarding, uh, daycare, just in general, there's all kinds of exposure. And then what's happening in the home too, because that could potentially be detrimental as well. So they do have, Fear Free has their their kind of professional side, which is fearfreepets.com, but they also have fearfreehappyhomes.com, which is geared towards pet owners. And it has amazing resources. Um, my husband and I have been involved in writing a lot of content for that, especially their video content. So there's over 60, some video tutorials, really short videos, somewhere between you know two to five minutes on a variety of different topics, whether it be noise sensitivities, um, training your cat, you know, <laughs> training your dog, body yes. language 101 for dogs and cats. So really kind of an education program. And that's really Fear Free and Fear Free Happy Homes is an online education program, mostly and certification program for animal professionals. That is so good. Now, before I want to talk about your book, but something else I just want people to realize. So we said there's 30 in the world. We're talking the world, mm -hmm. you know, 30 veterinary technicians that are specializing in behavior. How many veterinary behaviorists now are there in the world? I think there's right around a hundred. Okay, good. Okay. I mean, so but still people need still, to realize there's a huge the need, world. right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, there are, so, there are a lot of animals out there to help still. And so that's why we do rely on, we need, it, it takes a village as Julie would always say, Julie Shaw, it takes a village to help animals and pet owners. So it's not just about the veterinarian or the veterinary technician. We also need, you know, professional animal trainers that are using positive reinforcement techniques and are skilled in those techniques. We also need uh, pet sitters and boarding and grooming professionals that are well-versed in these fear-free and low-stress handling techniques so that uh, the animal is getting a positive experience and having choices and we're increasing their emotional well-being in general. And I think, you know, it's slow, but we are getting there, you know, with things like the Karen Pryor Academy and mm -hmm. with all of this education, people are starting to at least know that positive force-free training is available. It's just getting that, you know, transition, you know, completely and that full buy-in because there's always the, you know, am I bribing things like that? So, but it is, I mean, I remember it wasn't that long ago that there were only 50 veterinary behaviorists in the world. And so right. that was, not, you know, so we're making progress. But part of the reason that technicians and people need to be aware of this is because you're not always going to be able to have those specialists at hand. So that's where your book with the canine and feline behavior for veterinary technicians and nurses is great because even if it's not, unfortunately, it's not required in all technician schools yet. Yet, I say, because hopefully <laughs> it will be, but every technician, every assistant, every, anybody, actually, I would even say anybody in the vet, any veterinary staff benefit from this, potentially even like groomers and pet sitters and things too, if they like the more academic, because like you said, it's a textbook. So it's not, it's not like reading Patricia, Patricia McConnell's, low, you know, at the end of the leash or something that's more story-like, <laughs> um, right. but it's still very informational. And you guys have more video content. You have a website that yes. has video content too. So if you're reading something and you're having a hard time comprehending it, 
when you're reading it, you can also go back and watch it online and you can see. So I think that's a great component. Yeah, and I'm really excited about that. In the second edition, we were had the capability then to add video links and there's over 50 videos available on that website. And so uh, showing a lot of the techniques and the handling and, and giving perspective. So when we talk about things and one of the things I'm really excited about in this book is we added a new chapter eight, um, which is I, I referred to it while we were writing it as the fear-free chapter, but that's not what it's called. <laughs> it's a husbandry and veterinary care, uh -huh. but it basically is the fear-free chapter. It talks about the fear-free techniques and it was co-written by myself and colleague uh, Rachel Lees, who yes. is a veterinary technician specialist in behavior as well. So and there's she tons was of videos. When she, yeah. finished her, when she finished the chapter, she was very excited. So it is such a small community that most of us do. If we don't know each other personally, I haven't met in a conference. A lot of us know each other because this world is so small that we that we are involved in. And, but one thing I was going to say that's so great is it is nice that it's on a website now because you didn't have to put a CD or a disc or a DVD in the back. Like right. even Sophia Yin's, you know, low stress handling book, which was groundbreaking when it came out, you know, it was a DVD in the back that to watch the videos. So right. technology, you know, can be a pain sometimes, but it definitely is a great addition for the book, it would be great if every technician just said, you know what, this is, I want this in my library. I want this in my, as my resource. So if there's a technician or even a veterinarian that's listening and they're like, what's this book thing about? You know, I haven't been required to watch it. What would you say? It's hard to say when a giant book that's got so much information, but in a kind of short version, what would be a good reason that they could have this on the shelf? And what would be some things that could help them in the veterinary field if they had it, even if they just use it as a resource, which in the veterinary field, anybody who's not in the veterinary field that's listening, we have lots of textbooks on our shelves when we are working. That does not mean that we go and like read it from page, from cover to front to back all the time. Some of them we do, but I, you know, have a lot of medical, you know, think like plum my, you know, I never read every mm -hmm. drug that was ever made, but when I needed to know something, I would go back and I used a lot of my books as a resource. What would be something that we could really encourage every vet hospital in the world really to have this on their shelf, even if it wasn't required reading for their education, so they could use it for their clients for themselves, you know, for the staff, what would be some things you could tell them about this? Yeah, I think probably I'm going to, I'm going to go with the prevention chapter because mm -hmm. I am all like, that's where I started in behavior, right? If we can prevent things from happening, let's do it. I think that's a large, one of the largest chapters, maybe the second largest chapter in there. The other one is the intervention one, but the prevention chapter goes into things like, what do I do if my puppy's mouthing me? Right. You know, so it, gives the veterinarian and the technician appropriate information that they can pass along to the pet owner. Because what you hear on Google or on TV may not be appropriate and so mm -hmm. that, and could actually be detrimental or mm -hmm. dangerous, mm -hmm. potentially making the animal become aggressive. And so, because some of the techniques that were out there before, you know, like your puppy's mouth and you should hold his mouth shut and tell him no and bop him on the nose. Well, you know, the next time the vet goes to look at his teeth, good luck with that because right. that's not going to exactly. go so well. Okay, I, so. Love, I really love mm -hmm. that too, because although I'm not working in a practice anymore, I'm still, I keep my fingers in, you know, in them. And in, the one thing has never changed about 
And it's actually a little bit worse now. Veterinary hospitals are very busy. Mm -hmm. Veterinarians, technicians, staff don't have the time that behavior consults really take. You know, I mean, my Mm -hmm. first, just like if you see a veterinary consult, you know, the first one's about two hours. By the time you ask all the questions and, you know, you really start to get somewhere, you know, and then they can be shorter after that. But that's a lot to ask for a veterinarian. So the intervention Mm -hmm. chapter would be like, even though it's important, that's going to be a harder thing for a veterinarian to give a quick tip. You know, the -hmm. client says, my puppy's mouthing, my puppy's humping, my puppy, you know, whatever they can go okay, here's this, or even better, they've read that prevention chapter person mm-hmm. brings in the eight week old puppy and they're, the person's like, what do I do? And they know where their local positive puppy socialization class is. They talk to them about so- the importance of socialization and doing it before the vaccines. I still have veterinarians that tell my clients don't take them out of the house until they're fully vaccinated. And you know, if they could read that, it would just be so great. Then they mm-hmm. do have the videos. So if you wanted a little bit more, you know, you could do that. And then I think also having that additional fear-free, even though that's not what it's called, fear-free yes. chapter at the end helps people understand because I think some hospitals get a little overwhelmed with the whole fear-free concept. Mm-hmm. They just think, oh my God, now all my appointments are going to be an hour and I have to just do all these things, which doesn't have to be that way. You know I mean? And there's a lot of things if you did it when I was practicing as a head technician, you know, I had my puppy classes in the hospital. So those dogs, those puppies thought that the hospital was the best place. They loved it. They were like, can I come get my, get Wade? Can I go in the exam room? You know, those dogs had the best, but even the ones who didn't do it, I was the behavior technician, even though I was not always doing it, but my little tips would be better about like, give them a call or, you know, do this or don't go to that daycare because it's not good. Or, oh, this is, this is a good situation for your dog Mm -hmm. or, you know, all of those things, those little bits of nuggets, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be overwhelming. I mean, you and I obsess over behavior and all of this stuff. And like, it's our geekiness, right? Or we nerd out on body language and behavior. Not everybody's going to do that. And that's okay. You can still be in the field and have compassion and empathy and learn the things you didn't know instead of thinking, well, that puppy nipped me, so I'm supposed to close their mouth or alpha roll them or some of these things that can be so detrimental to not only their relationship, but like you said, next time that dog needs an ultrasound on their belly and they need to be kind of rolled on their back for or an x-ray mm-hmm. and last experience was an alpha roll, it probably isn't going to turn out well for anybody, the staff, mm-hmm. the dog, you know, and, and even the owner, because if the people, if they can't get what they need done, then it's sedation, anesthesia, and it just becomes a big process. So I, that emotional piece is so important. And I, I hope that if people are listening to this and with the book and the fear free, we can keep mo- making this movement towards mm-hmm. being more considerate to dog as a whole, not just as pet owners, not just as dog trainers, but in veterinary world too. Well, and the book also talks about, you know, like how to collaborate with other professionals and what to look for and what questions to ask. So if you, if you're, if you don't have anyone in your veterinary hospital that is interested in doing that, or as a technician, you're not interested in doing that, you need though the skills and knowledge to be able to assess the people in your community to know who you can should be referring to because when you refer a client to someone you're saying like 
we are in line with this person's thought process and you may not be. And so it's yes. really important to have that knowledge if you're going to be making referrals. There are, and there's very important questions and, and things mm -hmm. to know. And it's very funny because I always am interviewing trainers for my center. Like, oh, would you like to teach? And I have like little questions like, who do you follow? Like, who are some of your you know, who do you, who, what books do you read? And sometimes they tell me these YouTube people and I'm they're like, you know him. I'm like, no, I don't. Yeah. I, you know, because I'm like, I want you to be saying Sophia again. I want you to be saying Debbie Martin, or I want you to be saying Patricia McConnell or Karen Pryor, not, you know, Joe who has, you know, a thousand followers, a million followers on YouTube, but does really wacky things, you know? So it is important to know who you are. And if we can create that community, it really helps. And when you can work with, if, if there's a veterinarian or a technician who isn't interested, I work with now, even though I'm not working in a practice, I still do a lot of veterinary medicine because I'm talking to vets who don't understand medications or I'm giving, okay, this medication is causing this symptom. You know, maybe they're, to their appetites decreasing too much, um, maybe it'll just say, you know, fluoxetine mm -hmm. and then saying, okay, what, well, you know, and I can work in collaboration because mm -hmm. of my tech and my training, it's helpful for me to have veterinarians too, who maybe they don't understand it all, but they're not closed-minded or not thinking right. old school. They're receptive, right? They want to learn more and it's just that um, it's not a requirement necessarily in their in their schooling or they haven't had the time to do the continuing education for it. And so certainly it's all about education, 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 <laughs> for sure, exactly. across the board. And we do better when we know better. Right? For sure. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So well, could you tell me, because you this book, this is second edition, so you've probably right. gotten a lot of different feedback over the last when was the first edition I forget if it, it feels 2015 like it was, so oh it wasn't gosh. that long ago but I mean yeah, but at the I same mean, time it's like yeah it's been eight years but uh -huh. I've been working on the new edition for three years in my brain the first edition was just out because it was so exciting when it finally came out because yes. I knew you had been working on it you guys have been working on it for a long time yeah. Do you have you had people come up to you, whether it's veterinarians, vet techs, even clients or, you know, pet owners or that have told you any like stories about how the how this has helped or how it's in, it, how it's been used in their hospital? Do you have anything like that? Uh, I definitely would say uh, probably the, the biggest feedback I would get, it would be from people who are working towards their veterinary technician specialty and behavior mm -hmm. and are getting the book because of that, because they have a strong interest in behavior or they're a vet tech. And so I get feedback from them as far as it helping them kind of understand more of the textbook information and the research that's back there uh, that goes with things like one, there's a chapter about dogs and about how they perceive the world and, and communicate. And then there's also a chapter on cats. And so I'm really excited about in this new edition, some of the updates that we made to the cat one. I, I'm the author on that one. I just, there's been a lot more studies about cats recently. And so we were able to make updates there. And we had the wonderful Dr. Lisa Rodasta mm -hmm. redo chapter two, which is the canine communication and development one. And so Lisa Rodasta is a board certified veterinary behaviorist in the Florida area. So yeah, it, you know, it has, I think, has really helped solidify their the knowledge and understanding of small animal behavior for 
veterinary technicians that are working towards specialty. And I love that you have the cats in there. When I was looking through my book and I was just like, you know, obviously the cats are still smaller, you know, they have time to catch up, but I'm so glad because so many times cats just get ignored. Cats, mm -hmm. cats, I think actually have a lot of more stress in veterinary hospitals than people actually mm -hmm. even acknowledge because if they're not biting, scratching or hissing at you, they think they're fine. But when they, you know, hide and go deep in their own self while they're getting their vaccine, oh, they were a good kitty. Well, <laughs> well yeah, because you didn't get bit, but that doesn't mean that they weren't like being traumatized by the whole right. experience too. Right. So I love that we are looking into cats more and that cats are getting a little more attention than yes. they used to get. So, well, and uh, I think, I think that we have done a disservice to cats a little bit about how we kind of stereotype them. Well, you know, that's cat, right? They dogs have owners, you know, and cats are have slaves or servants, yeah, exactly, like that or something, servants like that. something like that. Yes, exactly. Because we tend to normalize some of the behavior that we see in cats and we don't always feel like it's a problem then. I'll give you an example I, and I was a little nervous about putting this in the, the chapter because it's kind of my own opinion but uh, and I did state it in there but one of the things that I used to write about and used to say was that cats are not only uh, predators which are very good predators but they're also a prey species and I started to really think about that I'm like well how can you be both because technically we could all be preyed upon by something. Like if I'm in the ocean, like I would say people for the most part are predators, you know, uh, yes. um, but if I'm in the ocean, there might be a shark that would be a bigger predator and then I would be prey. But, and so I started thinking, well, you know, cats are definitely a prey species as they're carnivores and they have to eat meat and they, mm -hmm. there's no doubt about that. But why are we saying they're also a prey species? And when I started to think about it, it was because we're talking about behaviors that the animal is doing that we're normalizing by saying they're a prey species. For example, when a new person comes in the house, they hide. Mm -hmm. They uh, go under the bed and they don't come out. Uh, so that's because they're a prey species. They're worried about, you know, uh, novel things uh, or they run from dogs and stuff. Mm -hmm. Maybe they had a bad experience or maybe they had no experience. So then when I really thought about it, I thought this is due to their short window of opportunity for exposure. So their socialization period is much shorter than dogs. You know, we're mm -hmm. talking up to about seven to 10 weeks of age. So oftentimes mm -hmm. it's already closed before someone brings a kitten home. Mm -hmm. And so, and then genetics play a big role on their outgoing boldness or friendliness mm -hmm. with strangers and other animals. Because we also see cats that are, we call them adventure cats that are going kayaking with their owners and go for harness walks with them. And they're out and about and strutting their stuff and they're completely relaxed. And so I would say, well, did they not get that prey gene? <laughs> well, I think really what is happening is that we're seeing a lack of socialization or improper socialization, then we're normalizing it. We're saying that that's normal for the cat to run and hide. Like if, yes. if someone, yeah. yeah, if someone came into my house and my dogs went and hid under the bed and nobody knew I had a dog, like I would be concerned and I would get help for that. But we yes. seem to think that that's normal for cats. And so we don't do anything about it. That is very true, you know, and it is, it's one of those things we just kind of normalize. And then also like, you know, right now it's kitten season. So, you know, the mm -hmm. shelters, which is why I have foster kitties because, you know, <laughs> we have all these kitties out there and 
when you talk about that, the other thing that genetics plays a role is so many cats are also feral, you know, they're out and then they get trapped and they get caught, which I think is the situation with my, the kittens that I'm socializing right now is Mm -hmm. they were trapped. And then we have to look at, which is a whole nother can of worms that I don't really want to go into in deep, but to bring it up is the stress of mom, you know, Mm -hmm. the stress of mom being a feral cat, having to survive if she was feral, then she gets Mm -hmm. trapped and her either pregnant or with her kittens, you know? So Mm -hmm. there's so much more that we need to do looking into cats, you know, and that they don't all have to be shy and they, you know, and we do much more with dogs because I think also dogs go, we want our dogs to be in public with us. So there, I always say people that rarely bring me their freeze or their flight dogs, unless they freeze while they're crossing the street and it's embarrassing flight because they're pulling on leash the whole time. And it's embarrassing, but mostly I see reactive dogs that are barking, growling, and lunging. And it's not always because the person is concerned about the mental well-being of their dog. They're embarrassed to take them places. And that's what promotes them to want to come and get help. But we don't, with our cats, we're not taking them on walks. So it's not the same, you know, situation. Our expectations are different, you know, and so, and then, and then, yes, we are definitely normalizing some of the um, fear that is seen in cats as For just sure. being nothing For that you sure. can do about it, but there are things that we can do. So to help them be more comfortable, it doesn't mean we're going to make them a social butterfly and that's okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, well, and that brings me to something that has also, it ties in with the book because it's also from, you know, Monique mm-hmm. that with, and, and, and everybody's kind of doing the cooperative care. Cooperative care. Cooperative care is something that's also great. And what I love this movement, and I try to help my clients with it more. And it's something where veterinarians can at least guide their clients to teaching them. Like you said earlier, they're only in the vet hospital for a minute, you know, hopefully, you know, once a year for 30 minutes, hopefully, you know, Mm -hmm. and what their guardians, their owners can be doing at home to teach them, which I do a lot with my clients of, you know, desensitizing to a muzzle, doing the chin rest, teaching them to touch their feet, all of those things. That's something that anybody can be doing and you can guide them to the cooperative care because it also, it goes along with all of this that we're talking about, the fear free, you know, Mm -hmm. the book, it's all trying to move it together. So because like you said, it takes a village. It's not mm-hmm. one person's not going to fix everything, but everybody can kind of work towards it. So even, mm-hmm. you know, when your techs are reading the book and they can teach their, you know, clients, Hey, just do this. Or even, I mean, this sounds silly because it's, but I know it now because as being on the other side of being a client and not being the tech, I walk into some vet hospitals, whether it's my own or, and there's no treats in the exam rooms. And I'm just like, Lord, like, how can there not be treats here? Like, how is this even a possibility? But those little things were give them treats while they come in, you know, give them treats, you know, teaching them just some of those basic things. I have almost every fear client that I work with. I'm like, go to your vet hospital, do a happy visit and go, you know, just those little things that people can do to help reduce their stress to their um, dog or cat, really. I mean, I have a couple clients who are doing cat happy visits to their vet hospital and, awesome. uh, you know, yeah. because they need to go in and just go and like, and sometimes I'm like, okay, they get scared in the, in the um, parking lot, then don't go inside yet. Let's just get them happy in the parking lot and then mm-hmm. move on. So those are things that, you know, the book can help and the text can help and cooperative care and fear free. And it's just such a big thing that I just want everybody to kind of realize, I mean, and the, and the Karen Pryor stuff, I mean, it's, it's this movement that 
it, we just need to keep pushing on and, and, and educate. Education really is what mm-hmm. it comes down to. So do you see very many people in person right now? Or are you, um, you doing more just stuff with your husband? Or what are you guys doing right now? Well, <laughs> we're working on a big project, actually. Okay. So we have, for the past year, have not been taking new clients. We still mm-hmm. have, uh, are staying busy with our existing clients that we have and follow up. So we have a behavior-only referral practice outside mm-hmm. of Austin, Texas. And so we, like I said, are currently not taking new clients just because of a project that we're working on, actually, for fear-free. It's cool. an education project. It'll be coming out next year. So stay tuned. Cool. Uh, we'll have to have but, you back on. So you yes, it's been it. a five-year project on our end. <laughs> and so um, you can imagine it's quite detailed. Yeah. So right now, not working directly with new clients, working with existing clients, and then still the education piece. That's what we're working on right now, because we can only see so many clients in a day. But if you have you know, hundreds of people seeing those clients and you make more progress. For sure. For sure. Yeah, Cause there's two um, behaviorists in LA and I'm in Ventura and, mm-hmm. you know, between us, you know, like if they're closer to me, like I'll do the hands-on and I send them, but, but they're all booked up for months and months and months and mm-hmm. I can be booked up and it's just getting more people to be educated on yes. how to help for sure. So well, I so have, this has been great. I could talk to you forever about all of this because it's so fun. We'll have to have you back when you get your new surprise project out. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to, the whole audience to know, like any kind of takeaways? I mean, we've talked about, I think we've got a lot of nuggets that people could yeah. take away, but is there anything else that maybe we didn't cover or that you would just like people to realize about all of this fear-free, you yeah. know, compassion stuff? Yeah, well, I think it's a nice segue because what I what I would like people to understand is that when their dogs and cats are displaying undesirable behavior, that that behavior is very functional for their animals. So there's a reason that they're doing it. And it's not good or bad. It's just what it is. And so trying not to feel like it's wrong in some way, it's, it's usually in a emotional outlet or a behavioral outlet of the dog or cat's emotion that is coming out that you're seeing. And so in the the animal's mind, it's right at that moment because of the circumstances, their learning history and their genetics. And so it is functioning well for them. And so trying not to have that need to control or change that behavior, especially with force techniques, because certainly we can inhibit behavior in animals and stop them in the moment. And that can be very reinforcing to the person. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're oftentimes making the actual problem much worse because it, there's usually a fear component that drives a lot of these behaviors that we're seeing and an anxiety component. And just inhibiting that is waiting for an explosion to happen at some point. Really working with someone that can help you kind of see that and problem solve and provide better coping strategies in those contexts and teach you how to do that with your dog or cat, rather than going down that route of he needs to know he did wrong or, you know, like he's, (laughs) we've got to inhibit that behavior. So just really having a lot of equanimity about it. So having compassion for the animal without feeling a need to control their choices in, in that moment. Now I'm not saying don't, (laughs) you need to get your animal out of that situation, but 
you know, like we tend to get a little too over controlling. So it's really about, yes, you control them to get them out of the environment, but mm-hmm. try not to hold on to it like, and take it personally. If your dog or cat does something undesirable, even if it's showing aggression to you. Yeah. And that's hard. It's really hard not to feel hurt by that. Um, totally. and, but um, there's a reason for it. And there are people that can help you. I, when our kids were in preschool, I used to teach the and kindergartners, the nonviolent communication, oh, you know, I love it. And so yes, Marshall I, Rosen. Yeah. Marshall Rosenberg. Yeah. Yes. I, um, I taught them all these things. I made up curriculum because there was no curriculum for preschoolers. So I just made up stuff and it was so fun, but it was so empowering because then now I use it. I actually have a webinar seminar that I talk about things. It's not just training. And it's one of the things I talk about is understanding nonviolent communication, just as a quick and dirty for anybody who doesn't know anything I'm talking about is usually an an unwanted behavior, whether it's your child or your animal, an undesired behavior or unwanted behavior is oftentimes, or a quote unquote bad behavior is because there's an unmet need, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's an unmet need, which means it makes a uncomfortable feeling, anger, frustration, sadness, anxiety, stress, whatever. But when you get that need met, you know, and so like you were saying, these behaviors aren't, even if they're aggressive towards you, there's probably, there's something underneath that, you know, there's mm-hmm. something deeper and to control like that in the moment, like you said, get them out of the environment, get them safe, like totally get yourself safe, like make everybody <laughs> safe, but then don't just try to control because you can't control. Another thing I talk to people about is really you can't change your dog's behavior unless you change what you're doing. Like it all goes back to you anyway, because I can sit there and will my dog to, you know, stop barking at the mailman. But if I just keep doing the same thing and just will it and they keep barking and nothing's changing, but then I change my behavior and I redirect them or I make it so they can't hear or see the mailman. And I make a change that helps my animal then they can be successful. And then we're all like, you know, happy. So it is, it's, it's stopping blaming and calling them bad dogs or, you know, this stubborn, you know, all those things. Right. right. Really look at, there is a reason for the behavior, no behavior. Susan Friedman always says, you know, behavior doesn't happen in a vacuum. Like it doesn't just happen. Every behavior has, there is something, an antecedent before it. it. You just might have to look a little, be an investigator to figure out, what exactly is that trigger? Oh, this has been so great, Debbie. Thank you so much for taking your time today. And I can't wait. I can't wait for the surprise project that we'll have to have another podcast for so everybody can have it. So, um, well, thank you again for staying. Thank you all for listening and check out the book, check out fear free, you know, all the things we've talked about, we'll put links in, you know, when we post this, so people can find all of these things and hopefully we get some veterinary technicians, more VTSs and more behaviorists out there. Cause We definitely need it. So thank you all for listening. And thank you so much, Debbie, for being here today. Thank you.